I so this is I think you can hear me. Um, I'm doing this presentation blind, just so you know. I'm Surya Matu. Nice to meet all of you. But yeah, just so you know, I can't see you and I can't hear you. So this is going to be a bit of an experiment uh, as we kind of go through this process. Thank you for bearing with me. It's not my fault. I blame it on the my visa situation in the U.S. That's why I couldn't be here. So thanks for like take, having the patience to kind of endure this with me. Um, you're going to see me do this a couple of times in the presentation, and that's because I'm that's what I'm using as my cue to get to the next slide. So hopefully right now you are seeing <clears throat> my hand waving at you, and I am now going to start. So hi, nice to meet all of you, even though I can't see you. My name is Surya Matu, and I'm an artist, researcher, and accidental journalist. And for the last couple of years, I've been working on this idea of, I've been doing investigations into different algorithmic systems. And I want to talk to two of, take two examples of those for you today and talk about this idea of adversarial research. So all of this for me really started with a question. And the question was, how do you fight injustice if you can't see it? In today's digital world, Social, economic, and racial injustice lurks in the shadows of the unseen Facebook post. The hidden algorithms used to sort employment resumes and the risk assessment tools used in criminal sentencing. These systems tend to be opaque and beyond scrutiny. A consequence of this opaqueness is the inability to interrogate or audit these systems from a viewpoint other than the one of the institutions that make them. So what this actually leads to is a PR strategy that has become very common for the tech industry. First, reject claims that there is any possibility of wrongdoing or harm being caused by your technology. And second, when you are called out and uh, just apologize and say you will do better. All of this usually happens without any significant consequences for the tech company. Much of the criticism of the technology industry these days tends to still be hypothetical or speculative because it can be very difficult to measure the ways in which algorithmic systems harm people. For example, in 2017, it was possible to buy an ad on Facebook targeting people interested in buying a house and actively excluding African Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanics. The method of personalization that have transformed how we use the internet have also obfuscated the disparate impact that takes place there. This makes it significantly harder for those interested in regulation to collect the evidence necessary to hold tech companies accountable. Even when we do have access to data from algorithmic systems, they're often interrogated in a way that focus more on how the algorithms work, or rather how they were intended to work, instead of who they potentially put at risk. So what this means is that we get that same pattern I mentioned earlier where companies make stuff and then they just get to turn around and say, hey, I'm really sorry, I didn't intend to do that. It wasn't my intention, so you can't blame me. And it basically gives them like a get-out-of-jail-free get card while actually putting people's lives at risk. So every tool and piece of technology we create is actually imbued with the ethics of the culture in which they are created. I have been using the term adversarial research to frame investigations that reverse engineer algorithmic systems with the focus on understanding who they harm instead of how they work. So again, what this really comes down to is thinking about all the ways in which the system plays out, not just how it actually works, because often the way it actually works isn't, isn't the full picture. And I'm going to walk you through 
Um, I exactly need to go two slides forward, please, to slide eight. Uh, I want to walk you through two examples uh, of what I mean by this in the real world. So the first one I want to go walk through is the is an example from uh, from the last year. And when you start looking at the world through the lens, through this lens of like adversarial research, even the most banal seeming algorithms can start to look interesting. At Gizmodo, Kashmir Hill and I, my collaborator on this project, were interested in understanding how Facebook's people you may know algorithm suggested friends to us. So this is the algorithm I think anyone who's ever used Facebook should be familiar with. It's the one that shows you, hey, maybe you want to add this person as a friend. Kashmir had previously done reporting that showed how psychologists were being suggested their patients, and we wanted to investigate how this actually worked. Like, why were these why were these patients being suggested? The psychologist seems kind of weird and not within the scope of how we imagine these systems to work. Since Facebook doesn't have an API or a programmatic way for me to call the service. I had to build a tool for us that allowed us to collect every person that was being suggested to us on a daily basis. So Kashmir and I ran this tool for about, I think it was like three or four months and we went through the data and it was already clear that we couldn't like decipher why everyone was being suggested to us. We knew that a bunch of different factors went into each suggestion, but it was hard for us to know why a particular person was coming up to us. So, we, so that was kind of like uh, disheartening, but we kind of went on with it. While we were going through Kashmir's data though, we found this one interesting person whose name was Rebecca Porter. Rebecca Porter is Kashmir's great aunt by marriage. She is married to Kashmir's biological grandfather's brother. I know that's a lot, so let me just say it again. She's married to Kashmir's biological grandfather's brother. Her biological grandfather is a man she has actually never met with the last name of Porter. Her last name is, is Hill. Her biological grandfather abandoned her father when he was a baby. Her father was adopted by a man whose last name was Hill, and he didn't find out about his biological father until adulthood. So basically, this person who Kashmir was suggested didn't know, like, they, just, like, they didn't know that they were even family, but somehow Facebook's people you may know algorithm system knew that they were somehow connected. So really, Facebook was able to determine Kashmir's family tree better than even she could. After writing this story, we received a flood of emails from readers, <clears throat> excuse me, and a pattern that came up repeatedly was how users didn't have the ability to control who they, who they were being suggested, and in some cases, this was causing people real harms. So what do I mean they don't know who are being suggested? So if you go through your friend's settings, there's basically, oh, sorry. Um, so yeah, so we heard stories from sex workers, basically, who went to great lengths to not let their sex worker identities be known to some to someone who was just to their um, let me say that again. So we heard from sex workers who went to great lengths to not let their sex worker identities be known. Yet somehow their clients were being suggested to them on their personal accounts. So these are people who privately work as sex workers to earn money, and they go to great lengths to make sure that nothing about that profession that they're kind of working in comes back to their real life. Yet, despite their best efforts, sometimes their clients are being suggested their personal accounts. So people, so like, you know, if they, if they go to college, where they work, this is just something that Facebook is suggesting to them. And there's no way for these people to block friend suggestions. It's just like not an option. So at the end of the article, when we were describing 
this entire process, we actually reached out to Facebook and said, hey, we've heard this from people from, from sex workers and members of the LGBTQ community that they have these like multiple identities and they have no way to kind of silo them. So can, is there anything that they can do about it? And they said, yeah, there's a setting you should be able to go to and you can just choose no one and then no one will be suggested to you. How, so we wrote that in the story, but however, once the story came out, we received a flood of emails from readers saying that, there, that no such option existed. So hopefully you're seeing in front of you a Facebook settings page where the question says how people can find and contact you. And the subheadings are everyone and friends of friends. So when Kashmir did this experiment, she actually had a third option that said no one. The reason Kashmir had no one is because she's considered to be a public figure by Facebook. So they wanted to they put her in a different category. But regular people don't have this option. And I tried this yesterday and I still can't do this. So basically, there is no way for you to not be suggested people on Facebook. And they say that you can do everyone of friends of friends, so that kind of limits it. But it starts revealing the bias of what this company is really about. Right? It starts showing us that what they really care about is making sure that they build their social graph at whatever risk. And maybe they haven't thought about how it affects sex workers. Maybe they haven't thought about how it affects the LGBTQ community. But because of how aggressive they are in their marketing, it has these unintended consequences. What was great about this investigation was that we got to write this headline, where basically after the sex worker story came out, they, Facebook each reached out to us and said, hey, we're really sorry, but we lied to you inadvertently. We didn't know it. But uh, it turns out that, that we used to have this setting for everyone, but in a recent push to the system, we, we removed it, blah, blah, blah. And really what that revealed to us was the big gap between Facebook engineering and PR. So if the, if the engineers, were, if we were actually allowed as journalists to talk to the engineers and have like a kind of a reasonable conversation about what's going on, I'm sure we would be able to find a logical reason for why some of this stuff was happening. But because PR and the way these companies are set up are so uh, obscured, there's no way for us to have a real conversation around it. So they just come out saying whatever they want and all that, and they're not trying to actually help us understand how the systems work. They want us to not poke and prod at them. And I think that's where the problem really starts. And when you start digging, it in, digging into it even further, it gets even more complicated. So, Again, once the sex worker story came out, we started getting a flood of anecdotes. We got an anecdote about a man who years ago donated sperm to a couple secretly so that they could have a child, only to have Facebook recommend the child a person as a person he should know. He still knows the couple, but is not friends with them on Facebook. So this man's sperm child was suggested to him. A woman whose father left her family when she was six years old saw his then mistress suggested to her on Facebook more than 40 years later. And a lot of, so like people are always thinking, like, why is this happening? How is this possible? How does Facebook know so much about this? But really one of the, the, one of the most simple ways in which this happens, which we don't realize is by this thing called shadow profiling. Usually at this place, I, I ask people, how many of you have heard of shadow profiling? But because I can't see you, I'm just going to keep explaining it anyway. So I'm sorry if this is not new information to you. So shadow profiling is basically the concept by which, um, so let's say I like person A, person B, person C. Person A is on Facebook and has shared his contacts with Facebook. Person A is also friends with person B and they have shared phone contacts. Similarly, person C is on Facebook and has shared their phone contacts on Facebook.
let's say person A and person C both have person B in their phone contacts. Now, now Facebook knows about person B and they know that person A and person C are both connected to them. So even though person B is not on Facebook, Facebook has what they call a shadow profile on them. Right, so this starts getting into a really complicated murky space around like whose data it is and who it belongs to. Like does person B's contact detail belong to person A and person C or not? So these are like kind of the nuanced conversations that we get stuck into. And when you think about how this works, basically Facebook knows even more than they reveal because it's, it's all built in this like metadata and this structured information that we haven't seen before. Another place you can, like the company's business model betrays itself is in its patents. So when we were doing this investigation, we basically did a deep dive into all the patents they've ever suggested, they've ever uh, collected around uh, the people you may know algorithm. And it's wild. The stuff they have in there is actually super wild. This is my favorite one where it's basically, they have a patent. We don't know if it, they use it or not, but they have a patent that says, that, that describes how to use the scratches and dust from a lens of a camera they can basically find similarity in those kind of artifacts in different pictures to determine whether a pic a, whether two pictures have been taken by the same camera. So without any metadata of the image, any EXIF data, position data, anything like that, they are still able to figure out if the same if the picture has been taken by the same camera. Along with that, they can use your accelerometer. Sorry, there's a siren outside. Uh, along with that, they can use the accelerometer and gyrometer data from your phones to determine if people are walking together, should they be suggested to each other, and all of this wild stuff. Again, we don't know if they're using this or not, but this exists, these are patents that they have filed. And again, it goes back to this idea of like, what are they optimizing for, right? So if you look, think about the core of what Facebook's um, business model is, it's a social graph. It's that it has a, a network of two billion people that are connected to each other through this system. So what they really want to do is to add resolution to the social graph. They want more people to be connected to each other because it helps their business model. If you go through these patents, literally the first paragraph of each patent is why it's so important for us to build the graph, right? And there's also been recent controversy in the news sphere about the, 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 the cost at which they must be building the graph, which came out as a news story a couple of months ago. So <clears throat> a thing that's interesting to me about this is, especially in the context of the conversations we've been having right now about GDPR and like how users' data is available to them, this isn't considered to be users' data. So even if I download my data, even if the laws allow me to collect my data the way we hope, they're really all in the US so excited is going to happen in the EU because we are so far away from that right now. We've been we're so excited about that, there's actually still the, the notion of what is our data is still in the control of the company. So as a way to kind of get around this idea, I built a tool called the PYMK Inspector, which we released as a part of this investigation. And basically, if you look at it, it's, a, it's like this tool that uh, lives on the dashboard of your computer. And all it does is it logs into Facebook for you twice a day, every, like, every six hours, actually goes to the like it's, it's like it's like it's kind of like imagining imagine if you like opened your browser went to facebook clicked on friend suggestions scrolled all the way through the page all the way to the bottom and then wrote down by hand everyone who's being suggested to you and then time stamped it that's basically all this app does it doesn't share data with us 
It doesn't tell us exactly. It doesn't share anything with us. It's all stored locally. The idea is we want people to send us tips of anecdotes of who's harmed them. And this is what, like, what we mean by adversarial research. It doesn't matter to me exactly how this algorithm works, but if we aren't considering all the ways in which it's affecting people's lives and giving them no agency to even tell their stories of harm, it's, 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 it's not working. And, and that's where we're kind of stuck right now is we keep thinking of these algorithmic systems as this thing that are really challenging. But the reality is it's the whole the whole ecosystem is more complex and we need to have more transparency and kind of just like a more like clarity between what about what we mean by this stuff. So this is what it looks like in the example of like a social media company. I'm sorry, I don't know how many people must have shared on Facebook this week, but it's very easy to do in 2018, I think. But um, I'm going to move swiftly on from the Facebook example to an uh, example that's far more US-centric, and I apologize for that, but it's just the work we've been doing. And that's on this, uh, this case called machine bias. So if you can go to slide 18, please. I don't need the one in the middle. So a couple of years ago, I worked for this uh, news organization in the U.S. called um, ProPublica. And while I was there, we did an investigation, called, which we called machine bias. And it was basically an investigation into an algorithm called Compass, which is a risk assessment tool being made by a company called North Point. So I'm going to apologize in advance. This example is a little more wonky. There's a bit more stats in it, and I'm sorry that I wanted to walk you through a bit of the criminal justice system in the U.S., but I swear it's good. I swear it'll be fun at the end, like depressing fun, but still fun. Um, anyway, so yeah, so we do this investigation into Compass, a risk assessment algorithm made by North Point. The tool was, so basically the way this, this algorithm works is it's a 137 questionnaire. Based on how you answer these questions, it predicts certain things about you. Originally, what it was being used for was it was supposed to help determine <clears throat> when someone was coming out from jail on parole, what they were most in danger of so that social services could help them. So, for example, if they had a history of drug abuse, that would come up as a risk that they have. And social workers could make sure that they go through rehabilitation and kind of go through this process to make sure they don't get back into prison. That was the actual intention when this system started. However, what ended up happening is they started using the system to figure out who's, try, who's, who's likely to commit a crime. So it was kind of like they were trying to predict who is at the greatest risk of committing a crime again. So this is called recidivism. So the, the test was called risk of recidivism. So what they would basically do is you would answer this 137 questions and they would give you a score from 1 to 10 on the likelihood of you committing a crime again. So now if you start imagining what this looks like, right, you'll see. So like I'll, I'll walk you through what this looks like. So the two places in the U.S. where they were actually using this were Florida, uh, Florida and Wisconsin. In Florida, they were using this at, at what's called pre-trial. So what does that mean? Let's say you're like walking down the street and a police officer arrests you. He takes you to the local jail where you are held till you have to appear in front of a court, in front of a judge in court. That judge is the person who decides whether the cop shouldn't have stopped you and you can go off for free, whether you need to pay bail, or whether you actually need to go through a trial. Now what is happening with this test is when you were being stopped in the jail and waiting for your hearing, you were asked these 137 questions. And based on how you answered them, you got this score from 1 to 10 of risk of recidivism, so the likelihood that you're going to commit a crime again. And then when you appeared in front of the judge and he was going to determine whether you need to go to trial, your 
able to go off scot-free or um, you need to pay bail, he was now presented with the score that says this person is seven is a seven on ten of likelihood to commit a crime again. Now, the reason the company made this is because the prison complex in India, in, uh, in India, in the United States, is a problem, and they wanted to find ways, algorithmic systems that could help make it easier and kind of buy and fight the bias that judges have, because apparently. Judges are very racist and treat people of color differently to white people. But if you look at the questions being asked on this test, and some of them are here where it says, how many of your friends and acquaintances have ever been arrested? If people make me angry or lose my temper, I can be dangerous. How often did you feel bored? How often do you have barely enough money to get by? These are all questions where when you dig into them are basically just like proxies for class and race. In the US, I'm not sure about everywhere, but definitely in the US, these are proxies of class and race. And when you start thinking about the embedded biases within this, obviously it's going to come out in some way. Compass, uh, North Point, for their, in their defense, has done a bunch of validation studies that showed how the algorithm was fair. But in our investigation, we found in forecasting who would reoffend, the algorithm made mistakes with black and white defendants at roughly the same rate, but in very different ways. The formula was particularly likely to falsely flag black defendants as future criminals, wrongly labeling, labeling them this way at almost twice the rate as white defendants. And this is where the stats come in. I'm sorry for these statements. White defendants were mislabeled at low risk more often than black defendants. So what does this mean? This means that if you were a black person, you were twice as likely to get a high score and not commit a crime again. And you were a if you were a white person, you were twice as likely to get a low score and commit a crime again. In the real world, this actually plays out like this example really shows it. Vernon Pratter was low risk, got a score of three, and he went on to commit a crime again. Brisha Broden, who was considered high, like he was considered high risk. And she basically was taking, considered high risk of taking someone's scooter that she thought was free, and uh, and she did not go on to reoffend. And so this is like this is like the real world example of how this plays out. And what it really comes down to is a question of how you define fair. So North Point's argument is that they they contended that they indeed are fair because scores mean essentially the same thing regardless of the defendant's race. These are the tests they did. They isolated people by their race and they did and they tested how accurate their system worked for each different race. For example, among defendants who scored a 7 on the compass scale, 60% of defendants 60% of white defendants reoffended. Similarly, for black defendants who got a seven on the compass scale, 61% reoffended. So their claim was, hey, when we say it's seven out of 10, whether you're white, black, or Asian, you're all 60% likely to commit a crime again. So it's actually fair for, it's equally fair for everyone. And that's what all the validation studies said. But what our investigation found <clears throat> was that among defendants who ultimately did not reoffend, so people who went through this process and then did not reoffend, blacks were more than twice as likely as whites to be classified as medium or high risk. Even though these defendants did not go on to commit a crime again, they are nonetheless subjected to harsher treatments by the court. So basically, this was our argument that sure, maybe your algorithm works equally fairly for each race individually, but the world isn't fair. 
black people and white people aren't treated the same by the criminal justice system. And because they have to go through this process more often than white people, it's actually coming up that they, that they're, that they're, that they're, these stats where it's actually making them seem more high risk than they actually are. And this is where it gets really complicated when you're trying to have when you're trying to have these nuanced conversations because people say, well, the stats are fair. If you look at our methodology, this is how statistics has always worked. And they're not wrong in saying that, but the, the complexity that they're trying to reduce into a statistical model is going to have these biases. And unless we have transparent, open conversations about it, we're not going to solve these problems. <clears throat> so this was done in 2016, and this year. This headline made me very happy. So these two researchers did, an invest, did a, a new investigation into this algorithm when they looked at the scores that people got for the system and then asked random people on the internet. I think they had like mechanical Turks and basically they, they showed a picture of, this, of a person and said, do you think this person is likely to commit a crime? And they asked random people on the internet and the predictive model of the random people and Compass's algorithm were the same. So even though even though this was a system that had been through so, so much research, there's still some kind of integrity biases that are embedded within them, and they're hard to fix. And I guess what I'm what I'm really going to argue here is, I don't think that I think like if you use these systems to help humans, they can be very effective. But if you're using them to punish humans, you're going to punish the wrong ones all the time. And that's kind of the difference. It's not like there's a perfect system that can do this. It's like, what are you using this for? Are you using it as a punitive way to say, hey, this person's high risk, so I don't need to give them these services, which is actually what a lot of uh, institutions end up doing because it becomes easier for them to just, like, it, may, it makes their resources more flexible. But if you're using it, if you're using it for that, you're going to eventually harm people, often minority communities, underrepresented communities, uh, you're going to just end up harming them more because there's often less data on them and there's less interest to help them. So all of this to say, and I hope this last slide works well for you, it's my favorite GIF, I hope you can see it, but humans drive technology. And that's what we really have to remember in this. That when we start putting the blame on algorithmic systems over the people who make them, we're actually losing a lot of the nuance in this conversation. So. That's basically that's basically what I've got. It's the the idea being that think about I think about algorithmic systems not just as the way they work, but who makes them and why and what the kind of historical landscape that they're operating in actually looks like. And only when we start investigating these systems from this broader scope can we really start understanding how they impact our lives. Thank you. That's all I've got.